Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, assault, and rape that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. At 8 a.m. on March 12, 2011, 26-year-old Ryan Howe lined up outside the Apple Store in Bethesda, Maryland. He was waiting, along with everyone else, to buy the iPad 2, which had just come out the day before. But just as he sat down, a woman, Rachel Ortley, came running out of the Lululemon store next door. She was frantic her bright orange running shoes pacing as she held a phone up to her ear. She needed help. Her store had been vandalized. She heard strange moaning sounds from the back, but she was too scared to go look herself. Ryan offered to go in for her and check. She nodded gratefully. Would you mind? He walked into the store, slowly and carefully, the walls and shelves were bloated with brightly colored sports bras and spandex pants, everything still in order except the register and safes below, which had been cleared out. As he stepped further into the shop, he noticed a mess of clothes and broken glass. But on the floor, Ryan found a small trail of blood and followed it. It went all the way to a back room, ending in a pool of blood seeping from under a door. He opened it and immediately saw a body laying face down. She was unmoving, clearly dead. Ryan turned to head out and wait for the cops, but on his way to the front door, he saw someone else, an injured woman, out of it, zip ties around her wrists, but moving. She was frightened, bloodied, but still alive. Police thought she was a survivor, but 28-year-old Brittany Norwood was the killer. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. Last week, we met Brittany Norwood. She initially impressed her Lululemon co-workers with her bright and outgoing personality, until she garnered a reputation for stealing. When a co-worker threatened her future career over her thieving ways, Brittany took action. This week, we'll dive into Brittany's violent solution to save her career and follow her attempt to lie her way out of a conviction. 
28-year-old Brittany Norwood had big dreams to open her own gym one day. In March of 2011, she saw the first steps of that path. She had an interview with luxury gym chain Equinox. It was a natural next step after Lululemon. But Brittany wasn't the model employee she presented herself as. Her Lululemon co-workers believed that she was stealing small items, such as perfume and cash, from their bags. The company wanted to fire her, but someone needed to catch her first. And on Friday, March 11th, someone finally did. After finishing their closing duties for the evening, 30-year-old Jaina Murray discovered a pair of brand-new yoga pants in Brittany's bag, the tags still attached. Brittany didn't have the receipt, but claimed she'd purchased them from another employee. Jaina suspected Brittany had stolen them, but she couldn't prove it in the moment. She told Brittany they would deal with it in the morning. Jaina set the store alarm, and she and Brittany left the store. But just six minutes after walking out, Brittany made a call to another co-worker. She had left her wallet in the store, she said, and needed her Metro card to get home. She needed Jaina's number. She had the keys and could let Brittany back in. The co-worker suggested that Brittany call their manager, but Brittany insisted on calling Jaina, so her co-worker gave her the number, and Brittany sent a text. Coincidentally, Jaina had left her laptop. She said she was happy to go back and help Brittany get back in. Brittany sat on the bench outside of the store and waited. Next door, the Apple store lights were still on, the employees still cleaning up. Ten minutes later, Jaina pulled up in a silver Pontiac. Then she parked right out front and locked her car. At 10.05 p.m. on March 11, 2011, Jaina disabled the alarm and followed Brittany back into the store. Nobody but Brittany knows exactly what happened that night, but plenty of evidence exists to suggest the following narrative. Brittany and Jaina went into the back stockroom to look for Brittany's wallet. At some point during the search, Brittany most likely asked Jaina not to report the theft to their store manager. But Jaina was a principled person, one who wouldn't have accepted a thief as a co-worker. She refused to let Brittany off, leaving her with only one way out of getting caught. Brittany grabbed a merchandising peg, a foot-long metal bar used to display clothes, from a bucket on one of the shelves. The peg was hard and heavy, and Jaina had her back turned. In desperate fury, Brittany swung it at Jaina's head. In shock, Jaina dropped her bag and ran out of the back room and towards the front door, but Brittany wouldn't let her get away. Near the fitting area, she continued attacking her with the steel rod and pulled out clumps of her hair. At one point, Jaina slammed into the TV, knocking it over. Trying to catch her balance, she left a bloody handprint on the wall, then changed course. She ran for the back exit, but Brittany grabbed her by the back of her jacket. Jaina managed to run out of it and made it all the way to the rear exit door before Brittany pulled her back into a small corner. According to Apple Store employees who were still working and could hear the attack from the other side of the wall, a voice said, Talk to me. Don't do this. Talk to me. What's going on? Jaina was beaten. 
She was trying to catch her breath. Her response was muffled but desperate. God, help me. Please help me. But Jaina's pleas did nothing to sway Brittany. Before I continue with Brittany's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. It's possible that during the murder, Brittany went into what's called a dissociative state, adding fuel to the violence. In a 2001 study on dissociative amnesia led by forensic psychologist Stephen Porter, a dissociative state is defined as an altered state of consciousness occurring during a traumatic experience. Dissociative amnesia refers to a process of forgetting a trauma. Both victims and perpetrators of violent crimes can experience dissociative states. In trials, murderers reporting dissociative amnesia were considered less culpable than murderers who were conscious of their attacks. It's possible that Brittany entered a dissociative state when she began to attack Jaina and was not fully aware of her behavior. The study also notes that this results in a flattened emotional state during the event. So despite Jaina's prayers, Brittany continued to pummel her as she bled in the corner. First, Brittany used the merchandising peg. Next, Brittany took a hammer, then an adjustable wrench, and finally, a box cutter. Brittany continued to hit and hit, perhaps looking for a way to kill her. After 15 or 20 minutes, minutes where Jaina was alive and breathing, Brittany grabbed a knife off a nearby shelf, plunged it into the base of Jaina's skull, and finally ended it. Jaina's body went limp. Brittany stepped back, realizing that it was over. She had killed her. But, oh no, she had killed her. A few hours ago, Brittany was worried about being fired. Now, late at night on March 11, 2011, Brittany had to worry about prison. There was blood everywhere. The fitting room TV lay shattered on the floor. Drawers were torn open. Clothes were in complete disarray. Brittany needed a plan, any plan, but Jaina's silver Pontiac was parked outside the store and in a no-parking zone. If anyone drove by, especially a cop, they'd be suspicious, and it would draw attention to the store. So first, Brittany had to buy herself as much time as possible, and that meant moving Jaina's car. Brittany rummaged through Jaina's bag and found her car keys. She snuck out of the front door and unlocked the car, careful not to draw attention to herself. This was Bethesda, Maryland, and though the suburban neighborhood was fairly quiet and empty, it was also predominantly white and Brittany was a black woman. She knew she was more likely to be noticed. She put on a Lululemon hat, hopped into Jaina's Pontiac, and drove off. She parked a few blocks away, took off her hat, and turned off the engine. Brittany sat in the car for over an hour, devising the cover story she would use. She decided to pin the murder on two masked men who had broken into the store, assaulted and killed Jaina, and finally raped her. All Brittany would need to do was stage the scene accordingly. She walked back into the store and covered the soles of her shoes in Jaina's blood. She walked in circles around the entirety of the store, 
the back hallway where Jaina was killed, the fitting room, and the main floor, creating the footprints of man number one. Then she grabbed a pair of size 14 Reeboks that the store had around for men's alterations and slipped them on. She repeated the process, man number two, then took both pairs of shoes to the back sink to wash them off. Her shoes clean, she swiped cash from the register and knocked over mannequins and merchandise. To top it off, Brittany cut a slit in Jaina's underwear to make it look like the rape had occurred. Finally, there was the matter of Brittany herself. She couldn't flee the store. A co-worker knew that Brittany and Jaina had gone back in after closing because Brittany herself had asked for Jaina's number. So she would have had to be there during the break-in and assault. Brittany cut up her pants right at the crotch, then grabbed a razor blade from the bathroom. She took off her shirt, then held the blade behind her head. After a big, deep breath, she cut a long slit through the skin on her back. She repeated cuts on her arms, her thighs, and her breasts. Then finally, she cut a gash in her forehead. Bleeding, she grabbed a few zip ties from a box and positioned herself in the bathroom. She tied up her ankles, then her wrists using her teeth. She lay down and pretended to black out. It was the wee hours of the morning on March 12, 2011. With a Buddha statue hovering over her, Brittany waited to be rescued. Up next, Brittany's cover-up starts to unravel. Now, back to the story. At 8 a.m. on March 12, 2011, store manager Rachel Ortley arrived at Lululemon Bethesda, ready to open up for the day. But when she walked in, she found one of her employees, 30-year-old Jaina Murray, dead, and another, 28-year-old Brittany Norwood, injured and tied up. The police arrived and immediately sealed off the crime scene. This caused a stir in the neighborhood. What could have possibly happened at a Lululemon to deserve yellow tape across its doors? A gas leak? A fire? A robbery? Meanwhile, Brittany was taken to the nearby suburban hospital. She was, according to the paramedics, entirely out of sorts. She didn't speak except to ask about the status of her friend, the woman that had been with her in the store. She had wounds all over her body and her head, and her pants were torn at the crotch. To the paramedics and the detectives at the scene, Brittany was the victim of a horrific crime. Her plan had worked. Detective Deanna Mackey of the Montgomery County Police was the first to interview Brittany. When Mackey walked into Brittany's hospital room, she saw a woman who had just been through a great ordeal. Dried blood was still caked to her forehead, and there was pain in her voice as she spoke. She asked Brittany if there was anything she could tell her about the incident. Brittany didn't want to talk at first, but Detective Mackey pushed, saying that anything Brittany could give her might help them find the people that did this to her and her now-deceased friend. And at that, Brittany took a breath and proceeded to answer Mackey's questions. Brittany told the story of the attack in great detail. 
She said that when they'd gone back into the store, they couldn't find Brittany's wallet, so Jaina offered to let her borrow her Metro card so she could get home. And then that's when two males broke into the store. Brittany continued to embellish, adding details. She told the detective that the two assailants sounded white and that they struck her in the head and dragged her by the hair into the bathroom. There, one of them zip-tied her, yelled racial slurs, and raped her with a coat hanger. Brittany put on an incredible performance. She shook while she spoke. She cried. She wondered aloud if the whole thing had been her fault, which it was. But Detective Mackey soaked up Brittany's story about the two masked assailants who had raped and assaulted her at work. The detective didn't doubt a thing about what she was being told. A 2017 study by Emma Sleeth and Ray Bull found that police were more likely to believe a rape victim when she was emotionally upset, not intoxicated, and physically injured, all of which applied to Brittany. She was concocting details about the attack that made it more likely that she, as a victim of rape, wouldn't be doubted. And initially, she wasn't. Brittany was examined for evidence of sexual assault, then finally sent home. At the time, she was still living in the basement of her older sister Marissa's townhouse, but her brother Chris had come to keep her company, and her parents had flown in from Seattle. Brittany was quiet at first, and to her family, that made sense. She'd just been to hell and back, and most likely, she just wanted to rest. But Brittany's mind was racing. She was the only person who really knew what happened that night, and she had to be quiet, lest her family find out what she'd done. Two days later, on March 14th, Detective Jim Drury and Detective Dimitri Ruven arrived at the Norwood house. They'd been assigned to the case, and though they'd been briefed by previous detectives, they wanted to hear the story directly from Brittany. Brittany's parents let them in. At that point, the detectives still considered Brittany a victim. Detective Drury adopted a calm demeanor to comfort Brittany into thinking that she was safe. In her sister's living room, Brittany again described the events of the night. This time, she added that she wasn't killed because one of the men told her she was fun and continued to shake at the mention of it. Again, she was playing the rape victim with a startling amount of emotion. It would have been hard to doubt her, but the detectives had one question in their back pocket that threw Brittany off. One of the investigators had discovered a pair of size 14 men's shoes in the store, shoes that matched up perfectly with the bloody footprints. As Brittany was speaking about the night, Detective Reuven thought of the shoes and asked her if they kept any shoes in the store. Brittany said yes, a pair of men's and a pair of women's. She added that the men's are really big and we use them for alterations. It was a casual detail, one she didn't think much of, a small grain of truth she could hand over in order to keep herself off the hook. But the detectives thought it was odd that Brittany's masked killer would have known where the shoes were. Their suspicions only escalated. The detectives had a hunch that just maybe Brittany might not be telling the truth. They thought that maybe she might have been involved. But why? To steal a few hundred dollars from the register? 
It didn't make sense to them that the sweet girl they'd just talked to would have orchestrated a break-in and then subsequent murder and, in the process, harmed herself. They continued to hypothesize other suspects, but later that day, the results from the shoe print and blood analysis came in. According to the pattern of the blood splatter, no footprints ever went out of the front or back doors. The killer had never left the store. More details started to come into focus, providing further evidence against Brittany. First, there was the matter of Brittany's clothes. She had cuts on her torso, her breasts, and her thighs, but her clothing in those areas remained intact. Had the killer raped Brittany, then put her clothes back on? Next, the actual cuts themselves. As Drury and Reuven started to question Brittany's involvement in her assault, another detective demonstrated how if you reached behind your back with a knife and cut yourself, the line of the gash would match Brittany's. The line was almost exact. Lastly, there was the rape itself. According to the forensic expert, there was no evidence that Brittany had been sexually assaulted. No signs of the internal damage that would have been done to her by the coat hanger she had described. They did find semen in her, a direct contradiction to what Brittany had said about the man not ejaculating in her. But she also had an alibi. She told a co-worker that she'd had sex a few nights prior. Though the Bethesda residents demanded answers, the detectives weren't quite ready to accuse Brittany. By March 15th, they had hunches and assumptions, but lacked substantial proof. And it wouldn't look good for their careers if they accused a young black girl of murder when she had, in fact, been raped. They needed more evidence. And just when they thought they'd hit a dead end, Jaina's car was found. Someone had found the silver Pontiac a few blocks away from the store. A local cop said that he'd actually seen someone sitting in the driver's seat of that exact car at 12.30 a.m. the night of the murder, but that a couple hours later, the person was gone. While processing this detail, the detectives found small drops of blood on the driver's side mat, the steering wheel, and on the inside band of a Lululemon hat, right where Brittany's cut would have pressed up against the fabric. They suspected the blood was Brittany's, yet another thing that wasn't adding up with her story. Though it would take a couple days for Brittany's DNA to be confirmed, Drury and Reuven had found an opportunity to trap her in one of her lies. If they got her to claim that she had never been in Jaina's car, and then the tests proved that the blood was hers, a lie would be confirmed and would perhaps be the thread to unravel her entire story. The detectives lured Brittany into the station by telling her that they needed to take more samples of her DNA to distinguish hers from her attackers. Late in the afternoon on March 16th, Brittany willingly walked into the police station and offered up her fingerprints and hair samples. The detectives left the door open indicating that Brittany was free to leave at any given time. For the majority of the first hour, Brittany and Detective Reuven made small talk, at one point even talking about the newest iPad. But as the conversation progressed, Reuven pushed his agenda. 
He asked her some seemingly casual questions, questions about Brittany's dating history and about Jaina's. What did Jaina do after work? Had she and Brittany ever hung out? And finally, Reuven's most important question, did Brittany know anything about Jaina's car? Brittany froze at the question, but she was smart and savvy. Suddenly aware that the question might be a trick, Brittany responded by saying she saw it once, but she didn't know the make and model. Reuven pushed further. He asked Brittany more follow-up questions about the assault and asked her about more specifics. He was trying to catch her in any kind of trap, poke any kind of hole he could that would get her to pop. But instead of slipping, Brittany only grew more and more uncomfortable with Reuven's probes and therefore more silent. She asked if she could go, at which point the detective had no choice but to let her. She wasn't under arrest yet. But just before she walked out, Reuven stopped Brittany and asked one final question. Had Jaina ever given her a ride home? Brittany said no. Brittany again went home to her family, only this time she knew that the detectives were catching on. The questions about the car had been obvious, and she'd just given them full access to her DNA. If they tested the car, the jig would be up. Coming up, Brittany Norwood is finally arrested. Now, back to the story. On March 16, 2011, 28-year-old Brittany Norwood walked into the Montgomery County Police Station, still pretending to be the victim of a heinous crime. According to her, two masked men had broken into the Lululemon store where she was employed, killed her co-worker, and raped her. Brittany was deeply emotional and therefore believable. But detectives Jim Drury and Dimitri Reuven were starting to see another side of the story. Though Brittany had said that Jaina had never given her a ride, they confirmed that Brittany's blood was found in Jaina's car. Brittany was lying about what happened the night of the attack, and they knew it. But two days later, on March 18th, Brittany returned to the police station. She walked right into the interrogation room and told yet another story to explain the evidence. After a deep breath, Brittany claimed that before she was assaulted, the bad guys made her move Jaina's car. She said they accosted her for Jaina's keys, and when Brittany didn't know where they were, her attacker punched her in the head and made her look for them. They ordered her to take Jaina's car to a nearby parking lot and threatened Brittany by saying that if she passed anyone and opened her mouth, that she could, quote, consider myself dead. Brittany added that when she left the store, she even saw a cop, but she was too afraid to say anything. She pulled up as much emotion as she could when she spoke, adding a shakiness in her voice to make the fear even more believable. Again, she was the victim. But this time, Brittany's performance wasn't enough. Detective Drury leaned into Brittany and said, there comes a point sometimes when we have to break down and get everything off of our chests. You gotta tell us what really happened. Brittany froze. 
inside her fear welled up, but she continued to stick to her story. She had been assaulted. But Drury continued, accusing Brittany of having concocted an incredible story that doesn't make any doggone sense. Brittany pleaded, insisting, I'm telling the truth. But the evidence was against her. The detective laid it out piece by piece, the sneakers, the blood trail, the cuts on her body. Brittany had molded it all to fit her story. Still, she scrambled for a way to get out of it. She said she never would have murdered Jaina. She claimed that the two of them were good friends. She hadn't done it. But it wasn't working. Detective Drury pressed on with his theory. So Brittany, realizing she was talking herself into a corner, asked to go home. Drury and Reuven left the room to confer on what to do next. They weren't quite ready to arrest her. They had strong suspicions, but not enough hard evidence. But it was too risky to let her walk out. The detectives read Brittany her Miranda rights. They couched the reading as just a formality, something they needed to do. But though they told her she had the right to remain silent and the right to an attorney, they didn't explicitly state that she was under arrest. In response, Brittany didn't ask for a lawyer, but she did go quiet, then asked to have her brother and sister in the room. Chris and Melissa then joined Brittany, and the detectives walked them through how Brittany might have committed the murder and then tried to cover it up. Her sister became hysterical, and Brittany continued to deny it, but Chris, an engineer, simply asked questions about the evidence, about the shoe prints, the car, the injuries. He was highly analytical and admitted that Brittany's story didn't add up, but he couldn't turn his back on his sister, and he asked to talk to Brittany alone. By then, Brittany understood that the evidence was stacked against her. Not only was she going to jail, but her brother and sister couldn't deny what the detectives were telling them. And as Chris started to question her, asking if what they were saying was true, Brittany slumped in her chair. She just wanted to go home. But Chris insisted he needed to know what happened. He said, you need to tell me so I know how to talk to these guys, because if you did it, we have to get you a lawyer to defend you. And at that, the mention of a lawyer, Brittany's facade started to soften. She no longer played the part of the emotional victim, but became scared and apprehensive. For the first time, Brittany didn't deny the accusations. She told Chris that she didn't know how it happened. She would tell him the truth, she said, as long as she could do so at home. But neither Chris nor Brittany knew that the interrogation room had hidden cameras and a microphone. They were not only being watched, but recorded. And now the detectives had everything they needed. At 1.54 p.m. on March 18, 2011, Brittany Norwood was charged for murdering her co-worker and placed under arrest. Brittany spent seven months in jail while awaiting her trial. She didn't talk, neither confirming her guilt nor denying it. The only thing known about Brittany during these months was that she was, in the words of prosecutor John McCarthy, obsessed with grooming. 
Brittany constantly expressed concern about the state of her hair and her nails. In late October 2011, Brittany's trial began. She dressed well, wearing a top sweater and her hair pulled back into a bun, but displayed little to no emotion during the proceedings. According to a paper by social psychologist Craig Haney, the social environment of prison causes some prisoners to develop what Haney calls a prison mask, a hard, emotionless expression and attitude. This happens because a prisoner's vulnerability can be, and often is, exploited by other inmates. Detainees learn to hide their emotions and socially withdraw in order to protect themselves from more aggressive criminals. And in court, as the lawyers spoke of the events of the night of March 11th, Brittany kept her head down. She reacted to very little. The girl with the bright smile was broken. The case had already been something of a media circus, and the proceedings were being tweeted about from all over the world. Everybody wanted to know about the Lululemon killer and whether Brittany Norwood would be found guilty or innocent. But the defense had a lot up against them. The DNA results, the pattern of the bloody footprints, and a mountain of other evidence confirmed that Brittany was the killer. She would never get off entirely and didn't want to fight it. Instead, they decided to take a different strategy and decided to argue for a second rather than first-degree murder conviction. In the state of Maryland, first-degree murder carries the chance of a life sentence, while second-degree murder allows for the possibility of parole after 15 years and a maximum sentence of 30 years. The Norwood family hoped for the latter. That way, if Brittany was convicted, they would be able to see her again. She would be middle-aged by then, but she might have enough time left to get her life back together. The difference between first-degree and second-degree murder came down to the question of premeditation. Was the accused conscious of and had intentionally sought to murder the victim? That question was the defense's focus. And so, in a move that shocked the media, the defense began the trial by admitting that Brittany had, in fact, murdered Jaina Murray. But they spun it differently than the prosecution. The defense described a fight that Brittany and Jaina had gotten into and said that during the fight, Brittany had lost it. They framed the events of the evening as a terrible tragedy for which Brittany was responsible, yet had not intended. It was a sound argument. As a juror, it was easy to see Brittany as a scared young woman wearing pearls, one who had gone too far during an altercation but was not a cold-blooded murderer. But in the state of Maryland, premeditation can happen in just a few seconds, and the prosecution used this to their advantage. The state lawyers took the jury through every brutal step of Jaina's death, all 300 blows and five weapon changes, focusing on the time it must have taken Brittany to change out each weapon, the prosecutors were able to construct a different narrative, one in which Brittany had many chances to decide not to keep going, and therefore many chances to consciously decide that she was going to kill Jaina. On November 2nd, 2011, 28-year-old Brittany Norwood was convicted of murder in the first degree. 
Jaina's family rejoiced, but questions remained. Would Brittany finally speak? Would she finally give her side of the story the real one? At her sentencing hearing, Brittany finally made a statement. Wearing a black blazer and a pink blouse, Brittany apologized to the Murray family for the death of their daughter. She said to the judge, Your Honor, I understand I'll be severely punished for the crime I have been convicted of. She asked for a sentence that would give her and her family some hope, but still, she did not admit to what she'd done. On January 27, 2011, Brittany was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Lululemon Bethesda eventually reopened the store after a renovation. To honor Jaina, they replaced the front window with a stained glass display of the word love that still exists today. The busy shopping street went back to normal and the area continues to be low crime. Lululemon, the company, continues to value workers who are outgoing and ambitious go-getters. And following the trial, the company publicly stated that Brittany Norwood was the antithesis of their values. In June of 2014, Brittany's lawyers filed for an appeal, citing that the detectives should have read Brittany her Miranda rights much sooner than they did. But in April of the following year, the Court of Special Appeals upheld the first conviction and confirmed the legality of Brittany's interviews with the detectives. They emphasized the overwhelming evidence of premeditation and kept Brittany in prison. Brittany's lawyers continue to assert that she was not a sociopath, but committed a crime of passion, and Brittany's motive continues to be a subject of debate in the media. Only two witnesses were present that evening to give a true account of what happened the night of March 11, 2011. But one is dead, and the other is still not talking. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Brittany Norwood, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Yoga Store Murder by Dan Morse extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Stacey Lee Nemec, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm -hmm.